episode, Bridget Burns, co-director of the Women's Environment and Development Organization, We Do, delivers a keynote address titled Gender Equality and Climate Policy, Words to Action, in which she outlines the links between the gender equality and climate change agendas, and why it is critically important to jointly address these issues. Bridget Burns highlights practical steps that can be taken at the national level to apply a gender lens to the development of responses to climate change threats. She also provides an overview of the international frameworks that can guide these efforts. This presentation was recorded during the 10th gathering of the Parlamerica's Parliamentary Network for Gender Equality, Gender Responsive Climate Action, held in Port of Spain, Trinidad and Tobago, from May 22nd to 24th, 2018. At this gathering, participants discussed strategies for ensuring that national climate policies, plans and legislation are informed by gender analysis and that these are also in alignment with national and international development objectives. Honourable ministers, presiding officers, parliamentarians and guests, with immense gratitude to the Parliamerica Network for inviting me, and we do to be here, it's truly an honour. I actually started my career, I would say, many years ago as a research assistant to a member of parliament in the UK. So I appreciate and know very well the importance of your role um, and also the importance of the impact that you can have through your political leadership. In the 2016 Parliamentary Climate Change Action Plan, it states that to be credible, effective, and legally enforceable, international agreements must be transposed into national legislation supported by appropriate budget allocation and robust oversight to government performance. This, put parliaments at, this puts parliaments at the heart of the response to climate change. And I could not agree more with that statement. And I have to share that recently, a few, I think it was weeks ago, but maybe a few days ago in Bonn at the UN climate negotiations, and also last week, at the climate summit that um, we just heard about, hosted by the Ministry of Environment in Canada, called Women Kicking It on Climate. Everyone I spoke to, and everyone I mentioned to, that this network was having this meeting at this time on this topic, was thrilled, was excited, and said that's exactly what needs to be happening. So clearly, I think we're on the right track in terms of understanding where we are in the political moment, and seeing the kinds of training and conversations and dialogues that should be happening. Um, <clears throat> the fact of the matter is, and I'm going to address this in just a bit, the global framework for action on climate change, including but not limited to the Paris Agreement, has firmly recognized that to be effective and truly transformative, climate action must respect and promote gender equality and women's rights. This understanding did not come about overnight, but through many decades of work, um, of research and advocacy to articulate to policymakers and practitioners what at least from we do and my perspective is common sense legislating and implementation. That climate change is not a problem in and of itself but a symptom of a growing industrialized society and how it interacts with the earth. Thus as a human and societal challenge, humans and social issues, including how society is gendered, must be at the heart of how we aim to mitigate and adapt to this challenge. 
And so before I get into some examples, and I have to say that it's been a real joy to hear all of the incredibly distinguished leaders who presented and opened up the session before me already articulating some of the clear links between gender and climate change in their own context. But I'd like to give you a little bit of information and background about my organization. We're a global women's advocacy organization working for a just world that promotes human rights, gender equality, and the integrity of the environment. And we were founded over 25 years ago at the start of the Earth Summit in the 1990s. And I wanted to, um, there's many things that we as an organization were attempting to do. We were bringing and ensuring women's leadership as participants in those processes, but also ensuring that women's perspectives and gender equality were included in the outcomes. And Dr. Hazel Brown, who is also here and I was able to talk to you over the break, who's a NGO, former NGO coordinator uh, here in Trinidad and Tobago of NGOs working on women's rights, she called, them, she called We Do the Chief Troublemakers. <laughs> and the advocacy and the work that we were doing there was about training and engaging with women's rights activists to making sure that their voices could be heard in those processes. And I share this because often it's thought that this intersection of gender and climate change and environment is a new idea, but for many years and many decades, people have been, and women in particular, have been working at this intersection. And we do works towards two goals, which I think are actually goals that we all need to hold in our minds as we do work on gender and climate change. The first is that women are empowered to claim their rights as decision makers, advocates, and leaders, especially on issues related to the environment and sustainable development. So there's a numerous amount of projects that we work on. That's, for example, supporting the participation of women from developing countries on their national delegations to the climate negotiations, as well as to working with grassroots or indigenous women to bring them into spaces such as the climate negotiations or perhaps at national or local level where they can voice their concerns about what's happening to them in the context of their own communities. And then the second goal is to ensure that sustainable development policies, plans, and practices are gender responsive, environmentally and socially just, and effectively implemented. And we do that across several different policy spaces, engaging in the Green Climate Fund, in the UN climate negotiations, in the Commission on the Status of Women, in the process to develop the Sustainable Development Goals and it's all of its follow-up. Uh, including also desertification, biodiversity, anywhere that there are discussions at a global level happening about our planet, you can find women's rights and gender experts who are there each day trying to make these linkages and intersections. And part of the strategy that we have for linking social science and policy is to create and generate intersectional knowledge. And so I have some examples there. Um, I'm not going to go through them because I'm going to talk a bit more detailed about what the links between gender and climate change are. But just to say that in our experience, we, needed, we have to and continually need to create more tools and information for policymakers to contextualize this issue to what's happening in their own constituencies and their own communities, and also to link it to the science and data that's being presented at international level. So we have an example there where we took one of the stats from the recent um, IPCC, the International Panel on Cl uh, 
Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change in their fifth report, and we looked at what they were saying were going to be the impacts of climate change and linked that to what we know about gender and also what kinds of policies and practices different governments are putting in place to address that. And before, again, going into gender and climate change links, this has been reiterated here a lot, and I have to say, I think that uh, the par interparliamentary network that you have is... Um, is really advanced in how you speak about gender, I must say. I think that one of the challenges that we have at an international level is that there's still a lot of uh, misunderstanding. Uh, there is often a conflation that gender means women. And so when we're talking about gender, first of all, it's an issue that only women should be concerned about. And it's an issue that only means we're talking about policies and practices that are targeted at women. Now, of course, and this is why I emphasize the two goals that we do has, of course, there is a need and a space for policies and programs that are supporting women's rights and their equal right to participate, and that will require certain resources and programs specifically targeting women. But they also must target the gender power imbalances that exist in certain situations, particularly at community levels. And any project, for example, that if you're talking about a forestry project that just targets women without considering the gender power imbalances that might exist in their homes and their households can actually lead to increased rates of violence in different communities. So having a gender analysis and a gender lens where you're looking at what the impacts are on men and women, but also what the power relationships are in any community, in any, in any context, is critically important. And, and I mention here that we always must consider gender as only one intersection of multiple intersections, including race, class, sexual orientation, etc. So what are some of these links? between gender and climate change. I'm just going to go through a few of the most obvious and hopefully paint a picture of what this looks like. So we know that, and, and I, you probably won't be able to fully see this slide, um, but the reason that we share it, and this is part of the discussions that we have with different types of policymakers and activists, that we know in principle from around the world that gender gaps persist and continue to exist, that climate change impacts are going to be felt and are already being felt related to crop failure, fuel shortage, water scarcity, natural disaster, disease, conflict, etc. And that when you put these together, that climate change has the potential to exacerbate gender inequalities if those inequalities are not taken into account in the way that we design programs and policies. That is the basic premise in which we all start from. So if we look, for example, at agriculture, agricultural vulnerability to climate change depends on cropping practices. And access to land, as well as farming inputs and tools, um, water, fertilizer, and other inputs, as well as who adopt sustainable agricultural practices, are more likely to adapt to the impacts of climate change, yet access and knowledge of these tools and practices is gendered. In many settings, women are less likely to possess the knowledge and financial capital needed to improve their farms. Moreover, new technologies that are intended to improve adaptive capacity may ha not have gender equalizing outcomes. For example, and this relates a lot to the agriculture team that we had yesterday during the gender budgeting session. I think you saw a lot of these things come out. Um, men and women often play different types, uh, plant, excuse me, different types of crops and have different access to livestock. 
Depending on local context, this can make women or men more vulnerable to the effects of climate shocks. Cropping decisions can be impacted by the ability of women and men to secure the access to capital and agricultural resources. And around the world, women tend to have less access than men to cash and credit. Women are also less likely to have access to tools, seeds, and fertilizers, as well as high-quality water supplies, all of which increase women's vulnerability to the effects of climate change. Studies in Mexico have shown that women who have access to irrigation plant a greater diversity of crops than comparable to men, often making them more resilient to climate shocks. And further, we're seeing as migration flows reduce male involvement in farming in many parts of rural Latin America, women are playing increasingly important roles in maintaining knowledge about different plant varietals, as well as deciding which crops to plant. Um, and we've seen that in Mexico and Bolivia. And I think that particularly for disaster-prone regions, the issue of migration is a really important consideration when you're talking about resilience and gender, because often you see gender dynamics shifting as a result of disasters or as a result of loss of uh, natural resource because of the impacts of climate change. And that can create differ different gendered power structures than we had before. But it's important to note that often those are temporal. Perhaps that once the situation becomes ameliorated and men come back into the situation, you don't you don't necessarily you won't necessarily have seen a complete shift in the leadership and norms of those societies. In terms of water, climate change is reducing the quality and quantity of safe water available around the world forcing primarily women and girls to walk long distances and in turn limiting their time for other activities including education and income generation. The global energy transition of our, our energy systems for, to more sustainable forms of production as a means of mitigating the effects of climate change has gendered implications. Women and men face gendered barriers to electricity access, for example, but also who is going to benefit from a transition to a clean energy economy and who might be left at the side? Increasing disasters. We talked a lot about this yesterday. Um, and one of the most comprehensive and wild, widely cited articles exploring the gendered impacts of natural disasters suggests that females are more likely to be killed by natural disasters or systematically killed at younger ages than males. The gender gap in mortality um, grows as the magnitude of the disaster increases, implying that as climate change breeds stronger droughts and storms, women and girls will be disproportionately affected. But we have seen that the disparity gets reduced and that gendered social, economic, and political contexts can shape vulnerability. And often, particularly in the developed world, men and boys are more vulnerable to health impacts from climate change-related disasters than women and girls. I have often heard a stat many times that women are 14 times more likely to die in a disaster. I would like to not use that stat anymore because I don't know where it comes from. And I think what's important to note is that gender has to be a context in which we understand and look at disasters. As we heard yesterday, perhaps in your community, in your constituency, it might be elderly men who are living alone who are going to be most impacted and therefore most vulnerable after a disaster. And like I said, we saw um, in many flooding incidents in, the, in developed countries, it's actually men who are more likely to die because of the, the role that they play in first responder systems. But there's also the longer-term gendered impacts 
of disasters, and it's a, something we have to sit in because of the impacts that climate change are causing. So, for example, in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina in the United States, um, women's caregiving roles created work-related challenges. Partly as a result of those responsibilities, women were more likely than men to drop out of the labor force after the storm. Women were substantially uh, less likely than men to maintain their pre-hurricane employment or a job of similar status. And moreover, women in New Orleans experienced an average loss of earnings of 7% in the year after the storm, um, while males experienced a 23% gain thanks largely to the importance of male-dominated construction and sales fields in the labor market. Um, I'm not going to be able to go too much in depth. So I wanted to point out that in addition to um, the research that I was sharing here, which is part of a report that was done in 2016 to create an evidence base of research around the globe on what are the gendered impacts that we know of, that we have peer-reviewed, that we can cite across areas of adaptation strategies, livelihoods, migration, fisheries, forestry, transport, urban livelihood adaptations. Um, in addition to doing that at a global level, we also recently completed that um, in Canada at a national level. And there were some really interesting stats that came out. So in the area of food security, um, which is a big issue, particularly in the northern territories of Canada, the impacts are gendered. The impacts in terms of what type of gathering or hunting, particularly in Inuit communities, you see women and men doing. In transport, Despite driving more on the whole, national data showed that women are more likely, sorry, excuse me, men are more likely than women to ride bikes. Although um, the disparity is not too huge, it's 47% of men and 34% of women. But interestingly, the study also suggested that women and men use this transport for different reasons. Consumption is a really interesting one. In Canada, meat consumption is heavily gendered. According to the 2015 um, census, men consumed roughly 70% more fresh red meat per capita and nearly twice as much processed red meat and uh, processed poultry as women, which I think is an interesting and unexpected um, thing to find. And then also in terms of how do we create this just transition? Uh, in Canada, available evidence suggests that many resource management institutions are largely controlled by men, while a majority of the jobs in renewable energy and other environmental services belong to men. So this suggests that without specific interventions, it could be that industry that specifically benefits from a transition to renewable energy. But also it means that men are particularly vulnerable to policy shifts towards a sustainable, uh, more sustainable environmental means of production. And in addition, um, although 25%, only 25% of Canadian environmental professionals are women, though it varies considerably, but in construction, only 13% of environmental professionals are women. So I just share this because, and I'll come to this when we talk about the national policy pieces, but often um, issues of gender and climate change are seen as issues for developing countries. And again, why it's important to provide a gender lens is that these intersections happen in all countries, including in developed countries, and they frame how we should be designing our policy responses. So what are the benefits of taking a gendered approach to climate change? So in principle, taking a gender responsive approach to climate action ensures the promotion of human rights and the, that the projects and policies don't exacerbate inequalities 
but it also enhances the overall effectiveness of the action on sustainable development. The relevance of gender issues are not often well understood by many practitioners involved in climate change mitigation, investments, and financing mechanisms. Prevailing approaches to reducing emissions have prioritized scientific and technological measures, often at the expense of social and behavioral considerations. Most of the mitigation projects and funds so far have supported large-scale energy infrastructure and industrial efficiency programs, often viewed as mitigation projects that must be gender neutral. Um, public acceptance of these low emission transitions is critical to energy, transportation, and agriculture sector, and it requires the, a large number, the involvement of a large number of people, including men and women. So integration of gender equality in project implementation can improve their effectiveness and viability. If we look at transport, um, in Latin America and the Caribbean, over 50% of users of public transportation systems are women. However, not all systems are designed with the needs and perspectives of women in mind. Beyond that, the participation of women in the construction and operation of transport systems does not exceed 15% of the total labor in the sector, even though they represent 50% of the labor force in the region. So there have been a few examples of projects in Colombia. One of the clean development mechanism projects that they had was the Transmillennio bus service, and they did make some attempts in terms of integrating um, specifically designed, designated seats for women and children to have separate entry doors uh, for pregnant women and other vulnerable riders, and to launch, in partnership with UN Women, a campaign to decrease sexual harassment on crowded buses, and subsequently recommended strategies to enhance women's safety. Because if you have a huge bus system being put in place that is supposed to be promoting sustainable development, you need to take the concerns of riders into, um, into account. We've also had some really good examples in forestry in Mexico um, where, uh, for example, in Oaxaca, funding allowed the community forest enterprise to increase uh, mechanization and supporting training for women in the forest production process, resulting in a tripling of direct employment for women in the sawmills. And similarly, in the Durango uh, Pino Real Forest Corporation, one quarter of the 80 jobs generated by the project have gone to women, including the director's position. So we've already seen really, and these are just a few of the many examples we've seen where this incorporation has resulted in impacts. And I want to mention quickly that it's not just where these examples come from, we know we have holistic solutions as examples that exist from around the world. Um, there's a website here, the Women, Gender, Climate, Gender Just Solutions, which is something that we've been promoting for the last um, three years now, because often in spaces like the climate negotiations, you only hear about these very large-scale, top-down solutions, and not necessarily community-based or local solutions that could be scaled and replicated across many countries and have a very similar impact as some of the larger projects. Um, and so these are just a few that I've highlighted here from low carbon manufacturing of all natural Caribbean beauty treats started here in Trinidad and Tobago. So if anyone would like to visit a spa, I have uh, one to recommend that is both employing women as well as taking an ecological approach to how they, they uh, make their products. Um, 
But we also have women-led energy-efficient agricultural models, integrated waste management systems that are being promoted um, and put in place by Mayan indigenous women. There's bike projects in Brazil, which are focused on creating bike collective trainings for women. Um, and there's also solidarity funds being created to support um, women's access to drinking water. So lots of examples exist. And part of enabling environments for change, I think I've used Mexico as an example before, but for many reasons, there's a strong enabling environment in Mexico for advanced work on gender and climate change because of national policies that exist, but also because of local legislation. So in 2013, we do had a, uh, supported a case study on gender and climate change within Mexico, and the research showed the inclusion of a gender perspective in some institutions and environmental programs in certain states, such as the local environment ministries in Yucatan, Chiapas, Tabasco, and the federal district. Most of them had explicitly acknowledged an interest in, in integrating a gender approach, or at least in increasing the participation of women in their programs. And in some cases, this trend has had an effect on municipal governments due to the focus on local mechanisms of advancement for women. Um, an example of such local mechanisms can be found in the Diagnostic on Environment Sustainable Development in the state of Hidalgo made by the Hidalgo Institute for Women, who included um, gender equality, the objective incorporating gender perspective into the state climate change strategy in their recent um, program on gender equality. And there's also other promising examples, such as the Veracruz Institute for Women, where several courses offer training for public officers at municipal level on topics such as gender. And so to quickly move into what all of this means from a global process space, we have several critically important global processes that were decided in 2015, which really frame the action that we are taking on climate change today. Those include the Paris Agreement. They also include the Sustainable Development Goals. And they include the Sendai Framework for Disaster Resilience. But there are many others beyond that. There's multiple multilateral environmental uh, agreements. There's also, I have a picture of Hawaii there because in 2016 there was a conservation congress where they were coming up with what the 30-year agenda for conservation would look like. And part of, I think, the important work that we do um, is trying to translate and transpose what all of this means at a national level. And as I said earlier, the mandate for gender-responsive climate action is integrated across all of those frameworks. In the Paris Agreement, um, we have the, the, one of the key principles of the Paris Agreement was that parties and state governments needed to take gender equality and the empowerment of women into account in the, the starting preamble of, how it, uh, of the decision of the Paris Agreement. There was also integration of gender language within adaptation, that all adaptation had to be gender responsive, and that capacity building had to be gender responsive. And interestingly, beyond this, we know the Paris Agreement is made up of, of countries' nationally determined contributions. The success of the Paris Agreement lies in countries implementing these contributions. And so 64 out of the 190 intended nationally determined contributions that we had for the Paris Agreement included references to women or gender. 13 are from the Americas. Barbados, Brazil, Costa Rica, Dominica, Dominican Republic, Guatemala, Haiti, Honduras, Mexico, Panama, Paraguay, Peru, and St. Vincent and the Grenadines. So if you didn't hear your name, then it's important to look at what your NDC is and perhaps how that process will include gender and climate change. 
uh, gender and human rights, I should say. And interestingly, you might note the 64 out of the 190 are only developing countries. Not a single developed country included gender or human rights in their NDC, which again goes to show why we need to understand gender as a lens and not as a development issue. Um, I also, before moving on to the Gender Action Plan, want to say what I, what I added before. Every single climate finance mechanism that exists, so the Green Climate Fund, the Climate Investment Funds, um, the Adaptation Fund, all of them have gender plans of action and gender policies, which means that every accredited entity that wants to become part of the Green Climate Fund has to have a gender plan of action. And every project that gets put forward to the Green Climate Fund has to have a gender analysis and a gender component. So this has become a critical view and lens for how we get money for, um, for gender action. And excitingly, at the, at the COP last year, parties adopted a gender action plan. Because in addition to having this in the Paris Agreement, there are over 65 decisions of the climate, uh, under the climate negotiations that include and call for the integration of gender and the empowerment of women. But what parties were understanding and seeing is that there was a real struggle to move from the words to action. And in a post-Paris world where we need to be focused on implementation, what can be done to actually ensure we're moving on the gender mandates that we've given ourselves at a national level? And so the Gender Action Plan was adopted. It's a two-year work plan. It includes themes around capacity building, gender balance, coherence, gender responsive implementation, and monitoring and reporting. And I wanted to point out one in particular, which is that it specifically called for an action and activities to strengthen the capacity of gender mechanisms, including for parliamentarians, the International Parliamentary Union, commissions, funding ministries, non-governmental organizations, for the integration of gender responsive budgeting into climate finance, access delivery, et cetera. Um, this was something that was discussed over numerous consultations. It was identified by activists and policymakers that engagement with parliamentarians with gender machineries on the issues of gender responsive budgeting was critical and important to actually integrating the gender action plan. And so again, this is why this meeting is so timely and so important. And so how are countries acting on the gender action plan? Countries are supporting implementation via direct support for trainings, enhancing women's participation. I consider this meeting here acting on the gender action plan because it is starting to put that knowledge and dialogue together. Um, countries are transposing or linking their own national strategies on gender and climate change to those activities of the gap. Sudan has created a, a national gender and climate change strategy, and they have already started to, to link to those different uh, aspects of the gender action plan. Countries are developing tools to integrate gender into their nationally determined contributions. Countries are appointing national gender and climate change focal points and national task force. There's currently 22 nominated gender and national climate change focal points. But again, this is about how do we institutionalize this at a government and ministerial level to be able to support national implementation. And then, of course, organizations, local governments, and others are creating their own self-assessments of what are we doing in my constituency, in my community, in my organization to support action on the gender action plan. So the final thoughts I want to leave you with 
are that successful implementation of the Paris Agreement, but more than the Paris Agreement, successful implementation of climate action is in our hands now. It is in your hands specifically. It is in the hands of civil society, of local businesses, of those who are actually going to put their words into action. Tools for integrating gender into your budgets, into your policies, are readily available. We saw from the training yesterday that there are case studies and ways that we can really make sure that this is integrated. But subnational solutions must be implemented, monitored, and fed back into global processes to show that we are actually making progress on this. So I really invite all of you, if you and your own constituencies are taking this on, if you are doing an activity to create a more gender-responsive budget, if you're doing an activity to create more gender-responsive legislation related to climate change, then be in contact with those international policy spaces. Be there, be present, and showcase how this is happening. Um, form unique par partnerships with local women-led community groups, CSOs, and larger entities, and support them in promoting cooperative models and mul around multiple industries. And finally, and this was already said, but ensure, do what you can to ensure the collection of sex and gender disaggregated data, particularly looking at sectors that will need to shift to combat climate change whether it's their fossil fuel-based economy, transport, agricultural, forestry, the time is now to look at those sectors that we know need to shift, see where women and men are, and ensure in that transition that it's a just transition and that we don't re recreate a clean, low-carbon society where women and men are still so unequal in terms of the labor force, in terms of access to resource and access to benefits. So with that, I'm going to leave you with those final thoughts. Um, I have a number of additional resources that I've shared. And again, it's an immense honor to be here with you today. I go back to what I said in the beginning. I really, really think that the power for implementing effective gender-responsive climate action is at sub-national local level, is with you, and it is about your leadership on these issues. So thank you very much.